This is an RNZ podcast. Sand Amelia, the Prime Minister, isn't there yet, but is already making a mark on the world stage. That's right, Jacinda Ardern hasn't even left for the United States yet, but the announcement she made it today was fully intended to make America impressed. That was News Hub at 6 last Monday, making big news out of the Prime Minister's first trip to the US in the COVID-19 era. News Hub called it a mammoth trip, even though it's only a week, and at that point last Monday night, it hadn't even got underway. Without the Prime Minister there to report on, Amelia Wade made up for it by waving a picture of Jacinda Ardern at random people in Hollywood. I don't know who she is. She looks like a politician. Very, very um, marvellous woman. Now there, Amelia Wade was marking time because the Prime Minister had postponed because of catching COVID earlier this month. Seven days earlier, Today FM's Tova O'Brien criticised Jacinda Ardern and her people for allowing that to happen. She didn't use the critical worker exemption when her fiancé Clark Gayford got COVID. The exemption means if she tested negative, she could have left Premier House, gone to work, stayed somewhere else, hopefully preventing the Prime Minister from contracting the virus. The rules should also allow for her to have taken her daughter with her, who at that stage was also testing negative for the virus. And putting that trip in jeopardy like that was nothing less than a balls-up, a breathless Tova O'Brien told her listeners. These trips are priceless for brand New Zealand. No one is blaming the Prime Minister for getting COVID, obviously, and as I say, I wish her well, but I'm not convinced that she took the right approach here. Being just like the rest of us has a nice kind of team of five million vibe to it, but unfortunately, the job means she is not just you or me. She runs the country, she makes the rules, some of which are obsolete, and unfortunately for her, uh, have cost her and the country greatly. And seven days later, the Prime Minister was off to the US after all, to meet up with the media, already there, and obviously anxious to see her again. And the media had certainly been factored into the plan for this major trip. On day one, Jacinda Ardern met travel editors from some of the biggest publishers in the US, including magazine publisher Condé Nast, The New York Times, Forbes magazine and NBC News. And TVNZ1 News summed up the effort like this on Wednesday. We're open again and looking for business. Jacinda Ardern's message to America on her first day of her post-lockdown reconnection mission. Though TVNZ's US correspondent Anna Burns-Francis said that that would be an uphill battle right now. But now is not a great time for a trip asking Americans to invest in New Zealand. Inflation here is sky high and being tamped down by interest rate hikes. A recession is on the way. Americans are being told to stay home and save money. Prepare to weather the economic storm ahead. And as if to make that point, the Prime Minister's trip was pushed down the One News running order by a hike in interest rates here and by that school shooting in Texas, which meant it wasn't really a great time either for another stint on the CBS Late Show with superfan Stephen Colbert. I can only speak to our experience in New Zealand, but you know, when I watch from afar and see events such as those today, I think of them not as a politician, I see them just as a mother and I'm so sorry for what has happened here. But in another sense, maybe the timing was perfect for that, given what had happened in Texas. And for the Harvard commencement speech, which she delivered overnight on Friday, addressing the role of technology and specifically social media on our public life, public safety and democracy. What we consider to be the mainstream media outlets have proliferated, but ownership structures have not. Mainstream media have layers of accountabilities and journalistic expectation that others who also present information to us don't. There is competition in advertising revenue with subscription services and paywalls, 
all to aid in the survival of the fittest, with fittest now defined by how easy it is to monetize your content. And in amongst all of that lies the fact we're not talking about how we access information to inform debate, but whether you can call it information at all. Like many, Jacinda Ardern said she had no idea what was to come when she first experienced the internet as a high school kid in the 1990s and how social media platforms with billions of users would end up as avenues for radicalisation. Let's start with transparency and how algorithmic processes work and the outcomes they deliver. But let's finish with a shared approach to responsible algorithms because the time has come. Later in the week, Jacinda Ardern also had head-to-heads with tech and social media heavyweights, Twitter, Amazon and Microsoft, partly to talk business on behalf of New Zealand Inc., but also to follow up on the Christchurch call that was signed three years ago to try and eliminate extremism online. And on Media Watch last weekend, we had a long look also at how social media companies keep secret those algorithms that amplify extreme content. We talked about that, among others, with outgoing chief executive at Internet New Zealand, Jordan Carter. Now, he was there in Paris when the Christchurch call was signed three years ago, but in almost 20 years at Internet New Zealand, the last 10 as its leader, he's seen the internet develop from an interesting option for our media industry to its driving force, indeed, the main source of its audiences and its innovation. 20 years ago, Kiwis could easily use the media without the internet at all. TV and radio was available for free over the air, and you could keep up with daily news by buying the paper or even subscribing to it. Now, these days, you still can, but without subscribing to an internet service provider as well, you'll miss out on instant online news and entertainment on demand. Though, on the plus side, all that nasty online extremism would pass you by as well. Well, this week, I asked the outgoing Internet NZ Chief Executive Jordan Carter if our media are better off with the Internet, but those who aren't better off economically aren't. I mean, it was never free in the sense you had to have a radio, right? But a radio doesn't cost you 60 or 80 bucks a month, which a, a broadband connection can do. I think a good case study of the risks around a lack of digital equity or what happened with the pandemic, right? Like all the households that were trying to deal with remote working or kids in education and didn't have, either because they weren't near a network, like there was fibers and everywhere, or there wasn't enough mobile signal, or that they just didn't have, have the, the affordability of it. You know, we might have more to do there, in, you know, in terms of as digital becomes the more or less only way to go, assuring citizen access to it. Um, but it isn't just media, right? The, one of the challenges we've got is that, yes, the media claim is important, but who's out there, who's out there saying we're going to fund citizen access to the media or education or healthcare or emergency response or when there's a pandemic and you want to see what the government's saying about it? There's a massive public interest almost in making sure that everyone can get broadband for free. But we're, that isn't a discussion that's happening in our society. Yeah, people often sort of these days, I think, talk about the internet as if it is ubiquitous and even, you know, high-speed access and services like everyone can get them. But you're saying that the digital divide is real and policymakers and indeed, you know, broadcasters who decide where and how to distribute their content um, should bear that in mind? Some of the people who aren't on it are not there because they do not want to be. Um, but for other people, it is it is something that they're missing out on and they're aware of that and wish that they weren't. And that's one of the things I've been most bemused about is successive governments have done a great job on the connectivity side of things, getting the networks rolled out. But this little slice of digital inclusion stuff has just been 
manifestly resistant to this tiny investments that would be needed to sort it out. What is that simple solution you're talking about that wouldn't be expensive? In, in the school situation, it might be exactly that, you know, subsidizing broadband things. It might be that we need to do that for, um, for people who are in social housing, as another example. Um, it might be that there are some deals government could do with the big ISPs or even smaller ISPs to, to get some discount plans available for people who uh, are in the most need or provide vouchers. There's lots of ways to crack this nut um, as a relatively low-key way to bridge that gap. Yeah, you know, it's just it's a piece of unfinished business that I'm frustrated to be leaving behind on my part. Well, a few years back, um, when I looked through our records, we had a chat with you. This is um, when Sky tried to merge with Vodafone. And the, I think the Commerce Commission said no in the end, because it would have been a, a, perhaps too big a business and, and aspects of their business would have been uh, monopolistic mm-hmm. or shut out competition. But um, at the time, I had this bit of a theory that our news media companies particularly, but also entertainment ones, might end up being just kind of mere divisions of telcos. You know, it turns out I was completely wrong, and I think you actually told me so at the time. So, no, connectivity isn't really the issue. But um, was I completely off the mark? Could it have could it have played out like that? Connectivity to different sorts of networks being bundled together is a more logical grouping. Power companies are offering ISPs, or the ISPs offering power contracts. That feels a bit more. Um, aligned a bit more of a happy um, joining up together than the sort of disruptive, highly competitive um, media environment coming alongside raw connectivity and attachment to a utility infrastructure that that ISPs represent. So, um, yeah, Colin, I do think you were completely wrong. Well, the digital transition has been a big challenge for news media. Do you think our news media companies have made uh, the best use of what digital technology and the internet has had to offer. I mean, it's, it's only late in the game that they're starting to try and harvest revenue that way by getting it from, you know, subscribers or even donors. For a long time, they gave away news for free. Do you think they've perhaps not really adapted as quickly as, as they ought to have? I don't think any sector has. Um, and I think about the the music industry as a counterpoint that started facing this challenge big time, maybe earlier than than news and has kind of gotten over the hump earlier as well you know the, the for a long time music industry revenues were falling and people were saying it was the end of the music industry but that you don't hear that kind of stuff anymore because the business models have evolved and i think you're starting to see in the local media environment you know some of the subscriber um journalism that's going on with um systems like substack or the the newsroom example that people are prepared to put some money in for content and some of the bigger firms have started to make more use of the options that tech has got available so they are slightly slow to move on things that they could think through and do. But I don't think that's different to other sectors. You know, it's fascinating to see, for example, the management biodet um, stuff and to just see where that goes over the next few years. It seems to me um, a little bit less doom and gloom out there than it was a couple of years ago. You know, one concept that we've seen, the culture wars have sprung up. We could spend all day talking uh, about that. But I wonder, do you fear in the end, to go back to where we started, that sensible restrictions on the internet for the public good uh, are going to be difficult, are going to be caught up in, you know, kind of cultural and political, sometimes even party political battles about free speech and, and, and freedom? They might be, because, you know, we've talked already about the dynamic of these algorithms that tend to highlight um, content that is um, anger-inducing. The other kind of point in that culture war environment is that, bizarrely, what's happened in the Ukraine has helped to highlight that. 
um, the Russian state for quite a long time has made use of um, some of the vulnerabilities of this social media environment to intervene in other countries. And they seem to have an agenda um, to say, well, we can't ever win a, a head-on confrontation with the liberal democracy but we can use these systems they're built to undermine their social cohesion and their political cohesion. And so that's a kind of risk that I think people are waking up to and are starting to get grips, not with how to solve, but at least to be uh, aware of. So the culture war stuff, and to the extent that it plays out online, is a little bit um, fermented by, by powers like that. There's a lot of... Um, positive stuff that that has come out of this increasing social mediaization we the problem isn't when some person um chooses to express um random view x that i might or might not disagree with the problem is when the systems amplify it in a way that then creates social divisions that weren't necessarily there so none of that is new what is new is the way that these um media systems fasten on to the most controversial and polarizing views and then just keep serving them up in a way that draws people apart from each other. So I think if in New Zealand, if we can look at the reforms that we might be contemplating, things like the hate speech law or whatever it is, and go, it's never about stifling anyone's individual commentary or thinking. It's about saying, how do we create you know, systems of law and regulation that we do in every other media environment um, that can tackle the, the systemic propagation of this stuff. And I think that could take the temperature out of it a bit. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm too much of an optimist on that. Um, but there is a, you know, it is a, a challenge here um, for how we deal with these kind of online user-generated content systems that have kind of grown up um, without the law keeping up. Yeah, so your successor at Internet New Zealand has a, a lot to watch <laughs> unfolding in the in the uh, as, as this whole argument plays out. And in a sense, they're in, you're in the middle, right? Or Internet New Zealand is because you know it's always campaigned or, or tried to ensure that it's it's free and and open and effective, uh, a tool for people to use. If things continue the way they are, there might be more pressure put on it, more you know to to, to tamper, to filter it, and, and all those other things we talked about. Ten years ago, we were, the, you know, the, the ethos is really cyber libertarian. You know, stay out of the way. Just leave the internet to do its own thing. And certainly for me and for us, that the, what happened in Christchurch was the wake-up call that said, no, 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 no. We need to actually have effective responses to some of this kind of content, which is just beyond the pale. Um, and so I think that our Internet NZ's perspective now has shifted a fair way to say, you know, there are real harms that can be done online and we need to address and tackle those in ways that are um, sensible and proportionate and that are about making sure that the society and community as a whole um, can be a sort of prosperous and, and happy and safe one. Rather than just saying, as we might have done 10 years ago, yeah, the Internet's fine, just leave it alone. Um, and, you know, I'm proud to have been part of the evolution of our point of view, but you're right, there's a lot of work going on. And, and as the internet touches more and more parts of life, th those areas are going to grow as well. There's always going to be more to do. I mean, after March 15th, 2019, there were the ISPs joined together to block certain sites, a kind of emergency measure uh, where they knew that um, the manifesto in that instance had been circulated. Uh, but you and Internet NZ came out pretty strongly against the idea, the concept of 
internet filtering or bl blocking of sites uh, and, you know, the, the kind of wrenching of communications uh, and that mm. kind of as a blunt tool. I mean, why if it's not, I mean, it could be pretty effective if we know where these communities are when this stuff is circulating, why not, you know, cut off access to it and say, you know, not, not in, uh, not in the, knock down the pipe to New Zealand. Thank you. Um, I think the challenge with it is that, you know, it, Generally speaking, these filters will take out a domain name, right? And so one of the things the ISPs in New Zealand considered back in 2019 was, should we block Facebook because this content is being spread on Facebook? And I think they pretty sensibly decided not to um, because the overall harm would have outweighed the benefit, right? Imagine if that, that forum for communication and families keeping in touch got, got suddenly blocked. And what INZ has already always said is that having website blocking at a state level that's mandatory um, is just putting a tool in the hands of government that oughtn't to be there. So never never had a problem with um, voluntary um, decisions by ISPs, never had a problem with people, um, you know, the very limited scope of the digital child exploitation filter that deals with child abuse material online, which takes about images and um, particular web pages rather than whole sites. Um, but you know, it, it's it's better to get the stuff taken down by the content providers than it is to try for that ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And you know, I say that with less forcefulness than I would have done five or ten years ago, um, uh, personally. Uh, but I still think it's barking up the wrong tree to think that the web filtering side of things is what we need. Well, looking back on your almost ten years uh, in charge at Internet New Zealand, you um, you gave a, a speech recently on online talk to the telecom. Uh, users Association, and one of the things you mentioned, uh, I think I heard you say that there were too many silos in New Zealand, um, it possibly as a problem for confronting extremism. What, what's what's the problem there? Wonderful wonky word silos, isn't it? Um, what I was trying to get at was, you know, say someone comes online and starts um, abusing and making threats towards someone who's, you know, wahine Māori with a, a moko kawe on their face. Um, and threatens to come along and um, kill them and their family. Um, and then um, a couple of weeks later, they leave a letter in the, their letterbox, sort of reiterating the threat. Now, we've got um, NetSafe as a place that you can report stuff like that. We've got the 105 police website where you can report stuff like that. It might be that the intelligence agencies were going to take an interest Um the social network or the platform provider that was the messages were sent on might take an interest. Um, but what they don't do effectively is bridge between that online dialogue um, and the potential or actual offline consequences of it. And so that's what I mean by, by too many silos or that the, the various processes and systems aren't joined up. Um, so they, you know, there isn't a good flow between you know people making online threats and and the police maybe putting some protection in place. That's the testimony that we've heard from people who are facing this that the system doesn't deliver quickly enough or adequately enough. So it's a silo problem as, as part of it. I think another part of it is just a kind of responsibility problem. No one, no one is end to end in the government or anywhere else responsible for saying we're going to tackle this this collision of online and offline stuff that puts people at risk. Um, we're going to do so in a way that's culturally appropriate and safe for various communities in Aotearoa. That's just no one has stood up and said, we're going to do that. And so it isn't being done.
and and you know the the big fear you know we've seen you know an example in Christchurch um and I believe the testimony of um people like the Islamic Women's Council said where they were raising this stuff for years and years with authorities and it wasn't being dealt with with the urgency that was needed and people got killed and you know there is always a risk that this kind of online inflammatory inflammatory stuff radicalizes people to the point that they go and act um in the real world and that's what happened in Buffalo so <laughs> joining up silos is policy geek speak for saying the system needs to be knitted together and become much more effective and to be resourced to do that properly and that is not the situation we find ourselves in in New Zealand that was Jordan Carter, the outgoing chief executive of Internet NZ, stepping down after 20 years there, the last nine as its leader, during which time he helped broker the Christchurch call in Paris, along with Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who, during her US trip this week, met with some of the tech companies and platforms who committed to the Christchurch call three years ago, and she's following up on its progress. That's something we looked at on Media Watch last weekend. If you missed it, it's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed under the title Slaves to the Algorithm.